Amen. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning, if you would, to the book of Jude. In the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. And if we could uh, have a cell phone check, just make sure they're at least on vibrate. That would help us a lot. Uh, just make sure that they're, they're silenced or quieted. That would help us a lot. Nothing breaks a train of thought like a good cell phone tone. Exactly like that. That was perfect. I know. It's the cell phone check. I called for it. So, you know, don't worry about it. Um, but, you know, nothing, nothing can just kind of all of a sudden, you know, make heads go this way, you know. I, I, and, and actually, you know, if, if that happens somewhere along the way, just keep looking straight ahead. Because for sure, the last thing the person whose cell phone is going off wants is for you to be looking around at them. So, and I can see who they are. I'll get them later. No, I'm kidding. Amen. Jude. Today I want to preach a message entitled Pollution Control. Pollution Control. Verse 3 says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith. I know that last year our theme, or at least the theme of this series that I preached on doctrine was contending for the faith. It was drawn from this, but then really we, we went through a number of different doctrines that we believe and we hold dear and we believe that as, as a church, not just a local body, but also the church needs to hang on to and cling to. We understand that from church to church there are differences, there are situations from time to time where maybe it is that there is a church that does not believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit as a second work or a subsequent work to salvation. We believe that there is. We believe in that. Uh, we might disagree on the doctrine of eternal security. We believe that it's possible for an individual who has come to Christ to somewhere along the way, walk away from Christ and reject Christ even though they have received him in the past. We believe that. We might share some differences in that way, but nonetheless, we, there are some uh, things that we have got to hold on to and hang on to that are very dear to the Christian faith. And Jude is writing to the people there that they are to contend for the faith. He said, I wanted to write to you on one theme, but I was prompted by the Holy Spirit to write to you about something else, that we've got to contend for the faith. And i got to tell you, the more I look around and the more I begin to see things that are occurring and, and you know, uh, the more I'm, I'm, I'm out there on the Internet and I'm, I'm seeing different pastors and some of the things that are being written and some of the things that are out there I, I'm convinced now more than ever before we have got to contend for the faith. And when we talk about the faith, we're not talking about your personal faith. That is your ability to believe. But I'm talking about the faith as in the Christian faith and what it is that the Bible teaches us and how it is the Bible teaches us we are to live as a result of what we believe. My wife and I were in Washington, D.C. just a couple of weeks ago. We drove past uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. Anybody, uh, how many, how many uh, just curious, have ever heard of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency? All right, you've heard of it. But it's not on your radar. Uh, what's on your radar is, and I, when we drove past the IRS, uh, they made some kind of a little comical, you know, funny statement about all the nice people who work in the building. And everybody on the bus, they kind of laughed. But we drove past the EPA, and nobody said anything. They just kind of looked. It's the EPA. But the EPA is vitally important to this country, and here's why. They protect our natural resources from pollution. In fact, the Great Lakes, my wife works for the Great Lakes Protection Fund. 
And the Great Lakes are vital to this city's water supply. You drink the water here in this city, it's coming from Lake Michigan. If Lake Michigan were to be polluted, there would be millions of people who would be in some serious, serious trouble. There would be a water supply shortage in the city of Chicago and surrounding areas that would create havoc and wreak havoc. The EPA is set up to help protect all of those resources from pollution. And where it comes in most readily and most importantly is with our drinking water. I have traveled to some other countries, other countries before foreign countries. And one of the very first things that they will tell me in a particular place, in a particular country, don't drink the water from the tap. Get bottled water. And then, then I have one missionary on one occasion who told me, he said, and in some cases, even the bottled water is suspect. And I thought to myself, what in the world am I supposed to do? We take for granted, you turn the faucet on, it may not taste great. You know, you might be into buying bottled water, you filter it. But, you know, you turn the tap on here, you know you're not going to get sick when you drink the water. The EPA is set up for that kind of thing. It helps to protect against pollution and pollutants getting in. Did you know that there is a spiritual EPA? And the spiritual EPA is the Word of God and it is the Holy Spirit and it, is, it comes to help us to, to know what should be allowed into our lives and what shouldn't be. If there is anything that I believe the Lord wants us, at least this month, it seems like the Lord is, is impressing upon our hearts that, that holiness to Him is vitally important if we are to live a productive Christian life and if we are to live in a manner that is pleasing to Him. This spiritual environmental protection agency is acting on your, your behalf to help you control the spiritual pollution. And there can be spiritual pollution in your life if you are not careful. I'm going to read a verse in just a moment, but before we get to that, one of the things that the devil wants to pollute in your life is your Christianity. See, it's an amazing thing, and one of the reasons why we spent really a year taking one sermon uh, in each month and talking about the faith, talking about doctrine, is because if we don't know what we believe and why we believe it, when somewhere along the way that foundation begins to get shaken, here's what also will be shaken, your personal faith. That ability to believe. If somewhere, why, why was it that the enemy, when he showed up to Adam and Eve, the very first thing he said was, did God say that? Did God really mean that? I'm amazed. There was a pastor, I just saw a, 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 the, the promotional video just recently of a book that he is releasing. One of the past, pastor of one of the largest churches in America is now calling into question. He's got a huge following. Books flying off the shelves. But now calling into question the idea of hell and eternal punishment, which the Bible so explicitly, you know, you might as well just start ripping out pages. When you begin to eliminate various doctrines that the church has held to from the beginning of the church itself, then you might as well get a Thomas Jefferson Bible. The Thomas Jefferson Bible was much thinner because he had taken sections that he didn't like and he cut those sections out. We've got to contend for the faith. There is pollution that is getting into the church. The enemy is coming along and saying, does God really mean that? <coughs> this kind of thing, <coughs> excuse me, was happening in the early church. It's one of the reasons why Jude was writing to the people that he wrote to. But I want you to jump down to verse 11. Because Jude was talking about and begin to talk about false teachers. Those false teachers and false prophets who crept into the church. And they were throwing people into confusion. And this is where we have to be so careful. If somebody, I, I was rereading last night just in Galatians chapter 1. Rereading a little bit about what Paul said to the Galatian church. And how it was that Paul threw down the gauntlet to those who crept into the church and were teaching that somehow the people, the Gentiles, had to go back and 
begin to keep parts of the law in order to be saved. And Paul was a fighter. Paul said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the way it works. It's all about grace. In the end, when it comes down to it, you are saved by grace. It's not by works. It's not by what you can do that earns God's favor, that gets his attention. But it is by grace and grace alone. Paul wrote, and he said this. He said, if anyone comes to you, even me, if I were to come and preach another gospel or a different gospel than the one that I've already delivered to you, that is salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, if I deliver something different than that, then let that person, and he even says an angel, if an angel does it, let him be accursed. Paul says the faith can't be messed with. But here we have a situation where pollution was getting in. And in verse 11, we're going to see three areas in three particular ways or three attitudes that are shown by three individuals out of the Old Testament. Woe to them, verse 11, Jude 11, woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. If we're to contend for the faith, we are going to have to fight Three attitudes from creeping into our lives and ultimately into our church as well that will pollute the true faith and true Christianity. We have to be on guard against some of the nonsense that is out there and especially the nonsense that can potentially wreak havoc in our own lives and help cause us to call into question what it is that we believe. The first deadly pollutant is shown as this, the way of Cain. What do we mean by that? Well, it is this. It is a religion of works which led to anger, hatred, and eventually murder. He killed his brother, Abel, because Abel was more righteous than he. When religion is based on works rather than on grace and on mercy, it is impossible for that person to show or exhibit mercy. Remember, Cain brought the works of his hands. God had, had, had specifically said that they, he wanted a sacrifice. Cain brought the, the works of his hands, the, the toil of his labor, the, the fruit of his labor. He brought some some of the grains and the fruits of the field that he had worked so hard to till and to tend. And he brought that and offered it to the Lord. And yet Abel brought nothing more than a little lamb before the Lord. You see, Abel's sacrifice was based on mercy. You know why? Here's why. Because he realized that he had nothing to do with that lamb being a lamb. Abel didn't make that lamb become a lamb. Now, Cain could have done anything to his crops. He could have destroyed it. He could have stunted its growth. He could have withheld some water from it, possibly. He could have done things to change the events and the course of the growth. He could have decided not to put the seed in the ground. But in the end, a lamb was born, and there was a lamb. Abel had nothing to do with it. He had absolutely nothing. He didn't even have to feed it. For by nature, the lamb would go out as long as Abel led it. He would go out and that lamb would find pasture and begin to graze in the field. Abel had nothing to do with it. It was all based on mercy. And when he brought that lamb to God, God was pleased with that because in the end it it showed that there was going to have to be one day a spotless lamb that would die for the sins of the whole world that the only way to atone for sin is death it's the only way and this showed and foreshadowed what Jesus Christ would do on the cross one day but there was an ingredient to this deadly pollutant that affected Cain's life and his decision making and the way he went about things and it was the religion of his efforts so many people they come into church and they think it's what i do that counts you know it's 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 how i how i go about life that's that's the most important thing that's what impresses god but in the end that doesn't impress god 
Because if your heart is far from God and yet you're still somehow trying to live according to the truth of His Word, what good is it? You've got to live from your heart. It's got to be a heart issue. It's got to come from the heart. It's not about your efforts that's going to change things. It is about trusting in the grace and the mercy of Almighty God who says from the very foundations of the earth the Lamb of God was slain for the sins of the world. I've got to trust in that and that alone, not my efforts to appease God. Jesus already did it. He already worked on it. But Cain had this ingredient of his efforts that somehow if he just did a little more, God was going to be happier with him. That somehow you do a little bit more then God is going to be pleased with you. And that's not at all, brothers and sisters, what the scripture teaches from the very beginning. Even under the law, the people realized they could not, in fact, keep the law. They couldn't do it on their own. They needed the mercy of God, and it was the mercy of God that kept them and helped them and moved them forward in life and in their history. It wasn't the law. It was God's grace and his mercy, that ingredient of his efforts. There was also a second ingredient which often enters in when somehow we're trying to live to impress We're trying to live to impress God. We're trying to live to impress other people. And it is anger begins to get in. And Jesus told us in the New Testament that anger is the same as murder. What? Well, we see it play out, right? He got angry with his brother. Cain got angry with Abel. And he ended up killing him. Some of us think that somehow we can hang on to anger. And think that everything is going to be okay. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, listen, if you've got anger in your heart, you you have murder in your heart. You've got something on the inside of you that is devastating and deadly. And it will kill. This is why the Bible says, and it's so important for us to remember this. In the book of Hebrews it says that there is a root of bitterness that comes up and it defiles many. Because bitterness begins to to grow and turn into anger. See, it wasn't just overnight that Cain got angry with his brother Abel. It wasn't one event for sure. It was another, maybe one situation or another situation. And over time, he allowed that bitterness to grow and that anger to grow until finally he lashed out at his brother and spilled his blood and took his life. See, one of the deadliest things that we can allow into our lives is the religion of works. Because the religion of works will not keep you under the control of the Holy Spirit. We have got to be controlled by His Spirit. And the only way that we can do that is to trust in the grace and the mercy of God. The only way that we can allow God to control our lives is to say, Lord, I'm dependent on you. I'm not dependent on what I can do. I'm not dependent on works and my ability to somehow please you, Lord. I am dependent upon you and your grace and your mercy alone. So what was the result? Well, the result was this. That he was a wanderer. Cain became a wanderer, the Bible says. Living in fear, always looking over his shoulder. Where mercy hasn't been received, there can be no true rest. Listen to what Proverbs, you don't need to turn there, but Proverbs 28 and verse 1 says, The wicked man flees when no one pursues. You're living a life of, of, uh, that's displeasing to the Lord and you're living a life, maybe it is that you're religious though, plenty of religious people in the world and somewhere along the way, religion has become the, the order of the day. As long as you have a structured religion, you're okay. That's not the point, brothers and sisters. We have got to trust in the mercy and the grace of God rather than our own efforts And the way of Cain was the religion of works. There is a second pollutant that came in. And it was this. The error of Balaam. The error of Balaam. What exactly was the error of Balaam? It all boils down to this. And You would have to read in Numbers chapter 22 and 23 
There, it's, it's all about Balaam. But there was this king, Balak, who said, you know what? I'm a little worried about this, this people of Israel who were wandering around in the desert. They are strong. They're powerful. And you know what? I can't defeat them. They're defeating other armies. They're winning battles out here. There are people who are coming against them, and they're fighting them. There's this group that's out there, and they just came out of Egypt. They, had, they were slaves. They had nothing going for them. They had no organization of, uh, of being warriors or anything like that, and they're winning. So clearly something else is going on here. And so he sought the this prophet, this man Balaam, to come and to put a curse on the people. Come and put a curse on the Israelites. Well, the error of Balaam, which is not readily seen or easily seen in the Old Testament, though it is there, if you look hard enough, in Numbers chapter 22 and 23, you will begin to see something unfold on this error of Balaam. And it was simply this. The error of Balaam was to say exactly what someone else wants you to say, regardless of the effects, regardless of what it does, to go where the money is, to go with something that pleases people. And this is what Balaam sought to do. And we could take time to read it. I don't want to do that for the sake of time this morning. But in this passage or in those passages of Scripture, we find that Balak sends word and says, Listen, I'll give you everything in my kingdom if you will come and put a curse on these people. And the Bible lets us know that God told Balak, he said, Fine, you go with them. But I want you to know, I want you to do exactly what I tell you to do. And remember, this guy is the guy who got on the donkey. And on his way, he's not paying attention. He's not looking. He doesn't see anything. And the donkey sees an angel. And the donkey veers off the path. And Balaam starts to beat his donkey, beats him three times. And then all of a sudden, the donkey starts talking because Balaam still doesn't get it. He still doesn't see what's going on. He doesn't see that there is an angel there ready to take his life. Why was the angel there? Because Balaam was going to do what God told him not to do. You see, God told him to go, but God had said to him, say only what I want you to say. The fact that somewhere along the way, God had to repeat his message, and the angel, eventually when Balaam saw the angel that was there, the angel had to repeat what it was that God told him to do. He had to repeat it again. And the very fact that he had to repeat it lets us know that Balaam was going to do something different than what God told him to do. You see, there is a pollutant that comes in when we begin to want to please other people. When we want to begin to please other people because it's more expedient for us to do that. Maybe it's more financially expedient. If I just please other people rather than pleasing God, then somehow, maybe along the way, I'll get a promotion at my job. If I stop talking about the Lord to my friends, they'll be happier with me. They'll like me. Or if somewhere along the way, I just sort of, you know, I sort of just back off from witnessing to somebody. They'll think I'm really a cool Christian. Who cares if you're a cool Christian? Who cares? They're going to hell. What are you going to do? You're going to sit there and just let them do whatever it is because you want to please them. Paul says, I'm not right. I don't want to please man. I want to please God. There was something that motivated his behavior, and it was covetousness. (laughs) This guy had dollar signs in the back of his head. He's like, man, this king is promising me all kinds of money. If I can just go there and have my payday. And here's what happens. He gets down there. And he he tells Balak, I want you to offer this great sacrifice. So the king does it. He offers a sacrifice. He says, while you're offering the sacrifice, I'm going to go over here and see what the Lord wants to to say. In other words, I'm going over here and seeing if God is going to change his mind. Because you know what? He's thinking about all the money he's going to get paid if he can just pronounce the curse on the people of God. And he goes over and he's listening to the Lord. And the Lord says... I want you to say what I want you to say. You're not to curse those people. In fact, you're to bless them. He goes over, man, i got to say what God wants me to say. And he starts to speak blessing. 
And Balak gets upset. He's like, I told you to come down here and curse the people. Well, offer another sacrifice. Okay, offer another. Let me go again. See if God's changed his mind somewhere along the way. Say what I told you to say. Bless the people. Don't curse them. And he starts pronouncing blessings again on the people of God. You know, for those who are worried about curses from that which is evil, if you're a child of God, you don't have to worry about that nonsense ever. You don't have to be afraid. I'm afraid. There's, a curse. There's no curse. The curse of sin's been broken, folks. You don't have to be afraid of it. All of a sudden, he's see proclaiming blessings over the people of God. And Balak is getting so mad. And you know what? On the inside, you can sense that somehow as you read this story, Balaam is so incredibly frustrated because he knows he ain't going to get paid. How do we know this? Well, the second ingredient to this not only was covetousness, but it was greed. And listen to what Peter says about Balaam. They have left the straight, that is, false teachers. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor. Listen to this. Who loved the wages of wickedness. There it is. It was greed that motivated his trip, his desire to even go there. You know what his first response should have been? First response should have been, you know, no way. Those are the people of God. I'm going to bless them. We're just going to bless them. But instead, he goes down there and he's trying his best. He's trying his hardest to get the payday and he can't get it. Why? You know what? There are all kinds of things that motivate our behavior, brothers and sisters. But can I tell you, you've got to be controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. You speak what the Word of God says. Don't be ashamed of what the Bible says. If the Bible says it, brothers and sisters, then i got to tell you, we've got to proclaim it. We've got to believe it. Don't change your message so you can sell a bunch of books. I know there's nobody writing a book in here, but you know what? That was free for the... The dude, you say, one of the largest churches in America, Pastor, really? Honestly, I mean, you know, look around you, brother. You written any books lately? No. But you know what? When you begin to please, you, you know, you tell everybody what they want to hear. We could probably pack this church out five times on a Sunday. Just tell everybody that they're okay. That everything is okay. That sin doesn't exist. That hell doesn't exist. And for crying out loud, if all of that goes away, then what in the world are we even doing all of this for? I told you last year when we went through some of these doctrines, if this doctrine breaks down, it makes no sense to follow the rest of it. Paul said, if there is no resurrection, we are idiots. He didn't say it exactly like that. He said we're to be pitied by everybody. Because it doesn't make sense to go through it all. We've gotten all north of the neck on everything. As opposed to listening to what God has to say. We are calling into question things that are found in the word of God. Why? Some of these pastors are doing it for a payday. And they are laughing all the way to the bank. They are laughing as they have taken your 10 12 $15 that you've paid for a book to go and read it and to rehash some of the nonsense that really is not new. It's been around a long time. The whole idea of there being no hell is simply called universalism. It's been around for centuries. It's not new. It's always been called into question. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The church of Jesus Christ will always, always win. Incidentally, the title of the book that's coming out is Love Wins. You say, well, pastor, that sounds so wonderful. That's what I'm saying. It all sounds wonderful. It sounds so good. But the subtitle is something about, you know, calling into question the doctrine of eternal punishment and hell and the whole deal. As if somehow it doesn't matter what you believe or where you believe it, what's going on in the world, whatever it is, everybody's going to be saved. Well, if everybody's going to be saved, what are they going to be saved from? <laughs> Honestly, if, if everyone in the world is going to be saved, then there's nothing to be saved from. Don't we understand that? It's, a, it's sort of a self-defeating argument. You, you can't be saved from something that doesn't exist. Enough said. The third deadly pollutant is this. 
the rebellion of Korah. The rebellion of Korah. In Numbers chapter 16, there is a man by the name of Korah. And one of the ingredients in this, really, it, it is simple. It is rebellion itself. There is a second ingredient of division. But rebellion is an attitude that says, I know what the truth says, but I ain't going to do it. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. No preacher in the pulpit is going to tell me what to do. No, no ancient text that I read is going to tell me what it is that I'm supposed to do. No church leader is going to look me in the eye and tell me that I need to repent of sin. Nobody's going to tell me. We live in a day and age where you can come off with that kind of attitude, and you know what? You're viewed a hero. The rebel is celebrated. The rebels in our society are lifted up as though somehow they're the greatest and the most wonderful leaders that there are. And yet in Scripture we find, and, and Samuel said to Saul, he said, listen, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. We've got, brothers and sisters, we've got to be very, very careful what we allow into our hearts and into our lives. When we begin to rebel against God and rebel against the things that the Word of God has to say and what it is that the Word says, then we are running a very fine line of danger. We had better be careful. And this man, Korah, who incidentally was of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Levi was called to be in service to the Lord. They were individuals who were to be, their, their, their uh, inheritance was not with the rest of the people of Israel because the word of God says that God was going to be their inheritance. But Korah wasn't satisfied with that. In fact, he got really frustrated. He looked at, at Moses and, and his brother Aaron and said, you know what, has God you know, put you in a place of leadership? Who do you think you are? We have time, read it in Numbers chapter 16. It's an it's a intense read. But Numbers chapter 16 lets us know that he called into question the, the men of God, the leaders of God, and ultimately the Bible says right there in the text that he called into question God himself. And I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, you say, well, pastor, you know, we're, we, we love you, we're supporting I'm not even talking about you with me and me as the leader, as the pastor of this church. I am talking about the seed of rebellion that can creep into your heart and life in any point in your life where it is that you are living and how it is that you're living. And maybe it is. You know, it's so subtle how it begins to happen. Things begin to creep into our lives and, and we want to hang on to what it is that we want to do. We want to do it our way. We want to live our way. And somebody can look at you and they can see a sign of danger and they might even warn you. And you can just nod your head, uh-huh, uh-huh, and you go and just do your own thing. That's rebellion. Those who are rebellious, are rebellious, seek to exalt themselves over those whom God has chosen to exalt. Korah wanted to be in charge. He wanted to take over the whole Israelite camp he wanted to take over everybody, and yet God had picked Korah for a, another task. The sad truth about Korah and about his rebellion is that he didn't realize that God had a plan for his life. He wanted the plan of God for somebody else's life. He wanted to be Moses when God had called Korah to be Korah. Now I might be getting a little closer to home. Uh, you know, we sit here and we compare ourselves with everybody else. We've got to be careful we don't start comparing ourselves to other churches. We compare ourselves to this church and to that church and that leader and that pastor and, and this Christian and that Christian. And all of a sudden, we begin to become frustrated with where we're at. And it creates a sense of rebellion in our hearts. Korah lashed out against Moses and against Aaron. And when he lashed out, brothers and sisters, he wasn't just taking on Moses and Aaron. You will find that if you read in Numbers chapter 16, he was taking on God himself. But I love, I love the response of Moses in Numbers 16. The Bible says that as soon as Korah came to him with that 
venomous kind of attitude, that rebellion. As soon as he came to him, you know what Moses did? He fell on his face in the, to the ground. You know what he did? He called on the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. There is no better way to handle rebellion than to cry out to God and begin to call upon the Lord and begin to say, Lord, you've got to come in this situation. Maybe you got, you're a parent. You've got a, a rebellious son or a daughter or a teenager or somebody around. You know what? You might be fighting with them all day long. You might be getting in their face, getting in their hair, and you know what? It's not changing anything. They're the same rebellious punks that they've always been. The thing you got to do is you got to call upon the name of the Lord. Get on your face before God and start crying their names out to the Lord. That's what my mama did. It drove me insane. I was rebellious. I was just, you know, I was just, I was going against God. I was going against my mother and father. I, I didn't want them to be, you know, pastors. As a teenager, I was like, man, why do you have to be a pastor? <laughs> oh, God, I better pray for my children now. Because <laughs> if the enemy's still alive, guess what? I was just, but you know what my mother did? And my parents, both my parents did? One, they didn't allow disrespect. It was, you know, disrespect got another kind of, you know, handling and punishment. But in the end, you know what my parents did? Time and time again, I would come in at night after being out with my friends and doing whatever it is that I wanted to do. I thought it was so cool. You know, I thought it was just had it, had it all going on. My rebellion, I've got it all together. Man, my parents are so dumb. Can't believe how much they don't know about life. I come in. And my mother would be on her knees at the couch. And she'd be praying. She'd be praying in tongues. And I knew that what she was praying in tongues was reaching up to heaven. And somewhere my name was being translated from that heavenly language and was going into the portals of glory. And God was reaching down and he was stirring and he was doing something and he was making me so miserable. The thing is, is I was out there with my friends. I thought it was happy. I thought it was joyous. I thought I was having a good time. And in the end, I walked in and I was scared out of my mind that Jesus would come back and take all those who love him to be with him. And I'd be sitting there waiting for everything to unfold on the earth all by myself. I'd walk in in my sin, doing my own thing, and I'd lay my head down at night on my pillow, and in my rebellion, I would lay there fearful that somewhere along the way, my last breath would come out of my body, and I would find myself in, in an eternal, eternal punishment, which does exist, by the way. I was so fearful and yet kept going in my rebellion until finally the Holy Spirit came and he worked in my heart and he changed my heart and he reached down and said, the prayers of your mother and your father have reached me and things are going to change from now on. Listen, don't give up in the midst of rebellion that you see around you. Do you cry out to the Lord? You call upon the Lord and watch God do something mighty and do something great. Listen, you can talk until you're blue in the face. But you know what? It's not going to change anything. The only thing that changes is when you reach heaven and you talk to God about it and say, Lord, there is only one thing that is going to change this situation. The birth of rebellion is so subtle. For the Christian, it is often, it's often masked in spiritual and religious speech, and yet there's something that's going, down, going on deep down on the inside, there's something that's growing and building. We have to be so, so very careful. You see, the antidote for rebellion for all of us is to stay humble before him. It's just to stay humble before him. It's an amazing thing. One of the great dangers of rebellion is how a few can affect so many. This is where churches come to a place that this is the next ingredient in rebellion's division. But churches come to this place all it took was one man, one man to be upset about the way things were. This is how it works in so many churches that divide. All it takes is one dude, one woman, who just somehow doesn't like the way things are working. 
And the Bible says in the early part of Numbers chapter 16, Korah went to three other men, three others. And by the time they were done, the Bible says they had 250 of the leaders of the house of Israel. Not just people, not just ordinary people, but leaders of the community of Israel. They had them coming against Moses and ultimately against God. You want to know the end of that story? The end of that story is simply this. The earth swallowed up Korah and the other, the other two, two of the other guys, and then the other leaders, God consumed them right there on the spot. You say, rebellion? That's how God reacts to it? It's how he reacts to it. It's how we ought to react to it. If somewhere along the way we see the seed of rebellion coming to our hearts, the thing that we've got to do is get into the prayer closet and say, God, you have got to squash this in my heart. God, you've got to extract it. You've got to cut it out. What did Jesus say in the New Testament? He said this. He said, if your eye offends you, you pluck it out. If your arm offends you, you cut it off. It's better for you to go into heaven eyeless and armless than to go into hell fully, you know, full body. Get rid of that which doesn't belong. Get rid of that thing that causes you time and time again to stumble and go against God. This final ingredient is this. Division. Division and rebellion go hand in hand. Wherever it is, there is rebellion. Wherever there is rebellion, there is division. It's not long before somewhere along the way the camp gets divided. This is why, brothers and sisters, we have to fight for the unity that we have. You say, Pastor, you know, we have these Friday night fellowships. Why do we do that? We do that for a very important reason. We do that so that we can come together as a body outside of the confines of this church. Some of you, we only see once a week. We don't see during the week. And so we try to, from time to time, get us together. You say, well, well, shouldn't we be doing something else? Shouldn't we be doing something different? Well, that might be important. That might be good. But right now, what we need to do, and I believe it's important for us to do, is come together and and be in, in unity together. And sometimes one of the ways that makes that happen the best is to come and have a, have a meal and have a good laugh together. And enjoy each other's company. Don't allow anything to get in the way and bring a wedge in the unity of our lives, whether it is in our church, in your home, in your life, whatever it might be. Don't allow there to be any kind of division. The division of your own heart begins to spread to others. This is one of the great dangers, begins to attack those around you in in the church, in the body of Christ. It can come against leaders. How many leaders? I, I saw my own brother go through it. Many years ago, saw my father go through it as well. But I was at my brother's church and visiting his house many years ago in Pennsylvania when he was pastoring a church there. And, and you know, the, after about a year, the honeymoon was over at the church. You know, he was God's man until somewhere along the way he decided to do things a little bit differently than what this one man, one man in the church thought that he ought to do. And that's all it took. And they, they created, they wreaked havoc in his life. Until finally, eventually, my brother left the church. He left of his own volition. He left for a better place. But you know what? In the end, shame on that man. That one man. It was that one seed of rebellion that he allowed to come into his heart. And he felt that he could lash out and reach out and touch the Lord's anointed. And you know what? You know what God did? God had mercy on my brother. He just said, you know what? Time to move on. Go somewhere else. You know, today he's pastoring a great church, another church in Pennsylvania, pastoring a great church. Church is growing. Great things are happening. And you know what, brothers and sisters, in the end, God's not going to put up with it. God will, sometimes the the judgment that he brings upon that congregation is just to say, fine, you want to be that way? I'm going to leave you here stuck all by yourself in your misery. And that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he did. But you know what, brothers and sisters, we have to guard against rebellion in our lives. We have to guard against it as though it is the very thing that will will destroy us. You see, all of these things can get in the way of, of our life in him and get in the way of our serving him. So what are we to do about it? What are we to, how are we to live? How are we to fight this? Well, it goes back to verse 3. We read verse 3 for a specific reason. And the Bible says this. And let's read it again. It says, dear friends... 
Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith which that was once for all entrusted to the saints. I felt I had to write for you to contend for the faith. What are we going to do? We have to contend for the faith in our lives. We have to say, Lord, we're going to trust in what your word says. We're going to believe in you. We're going to believe in your mighty power. We're going to believe in what it is that you have said. And we're going to trust in nothing else. We're going to believe that the word of God says what it means. And that's the thing we're going to put into us. You see, the only way to fight that which the enemy tries to bring in our lives to bring a disturbance and to bring about a, you know, a division in our hearts and a change in our hearts that would cause us to go against God and go against the Word of God and go against the people of God. The only way to fight that is to get the Word of God deep down on the inside and say, Lord, I'm going to serve you and I'm going to serve you alone. Listen, you don't have to wait until you're older. Some of the teenagers look like they're bored out of their minds in church. You don't have to wait to serve God. You don't have to wait until you've had a mess of pain and trouble in life. You don't have to wait until you've made some really bad decisions and you're weeping tears of, of, of just why did I do it this way? Why did I do it this way? I don't know how many teenagers I've encountered over the years who come back as adults and they we hear their stories as adults. I regret the things that I said. I regret the things that I did. You don't have to go in that direction. The thing that you can do today is you can say, God, I'm going to serve you now. We stand to our feet. Oh, Jesus. If there is anything that we need in this place today, we need to get a hold of God. And we need to say, Lord, we need you right now as never before. We need you in our lives. We need you in our homes. We need you in our hearts. We need you to change us. Somebody once said, you know, we want revival, but revival's going to start here, right here. And he drew an imaginary circle around himself. He said it's going to start right inside this circle. And if change is going to come, it's going to come when we begin to cry out to the Lord and say, God, you bring the change in me. I, I know there might be those who say, well, you know, the change is going to come in the pastor. Well, I, I, can't, I could not agree with you more. But you know what? Rather than pointing our finger to one we need to point our finger in the mirror and just say, Lord, let the change begin in me. Don't let any of these pollutants get into me. Don't let anything come that would cause me to go against your word and go against God, but help me to serve you with everything that is within me. Help me to serve you with all of my heart, my soul, and my mind. I want us right now to just pray. And we're going to pray in the closing moments of this meeting and ask God to come by His Holy Spirit and to allow His Word to take root in our hearts. That if we've allowed maybe a root of bitterness to spring up, that we're going to say, Lord, you've got to cut that out of my life. Lord, take it away. I don't want it. Maybe it is that we have, we have conveniently left our, our testimony out of our lives with everybody around us because... Somewhere along the way, we think it's going to drive a wedge in between friends and family and loved ones. And, and we've done it for gain. It's not, not financial profit, but it's another kind of profit, another kind of gain. But you know what? Stand for him. Stand for the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to serve you with all of my heart. And when I have opportunity to witness, I'm going to witness for you. I'm going to give my all to you. Let's pray right now together and let's call upon the Lord and say, Lord, today we want your spirit to be the spiritual EPA. We want you to be that spiritual pollution control. Come on, let's cry out to the Lord right now. Heavenly Father, as a body of believers right now, we join together, one with another, one for another today. Lord, we pray for the one on our right and on our left that we would be strong in you and in the power of your might. Lord God, your word lets us know that we can be victorious. God, I pray that you would help us to contend for the faith in our lives so that when things get shaken, Lord, our faith 
will not be shaken. When things are called into question, we won't sit there and worry about it. But Lord, we will stand on the Word of God and we will be strong on the foundation of the Lord. Dear God, I pray in the name of Jesus that your power and your glory would rest upon this body of believers. Help us to be holy. Help us, oh God, not to allow any pollutant into our lives. Help us, Lord, I pray, never ever to think that the religion of works is what counts. But God, it is that we trust in your grace and in your power and in your mercy and in your love, oh God. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would have your way in our lives, oh God. Lord, we need you, oh God, as a body. We need you as a congregation, I pray. Lord, cleanse us and purify us, oh God. In the name of Jesus, purify our hearts, oh Lord. Lord God, we need your power in our lives, oh Lord. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we need you to help us today. We need you to move upon us, oh God. Lord, if some of us have strayed away from you today, Lord, we come running back to you. We come running to you, Lord, and say that we want to be holy. We want to serve you with everything that is within us. Lord God, in the name of Jesus, we pray that your power would be upon us, oh God. In the name of Almighty God, Lord, how we need you. And I pray for your people that today as they walk out of this building, that they would take to heart the fact that you desire holiness from us. And Lord, you desire us not to follow in the way of these that are mentioned out of the Old Testament, O God, that show an attitude that can creep into our lives. But Lord, you desire us to follow you with all of our hearts, to stay humble, and to give our all to you and to give our best to you. Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray for your people, that you'd cover them with your precious blood. Give them strength this week. Lord, some of them face difficult jobs. Some of them face difficult lives, difficult homes. God, I pray that your grace would be poured into them today. In the mighty name of Jesus, and Lord, we thank you. I thank you that you're a merciful Savior and that you love us with an everlasting love. Lord God, we pray right now that you would help us just to be all that we can be for you, to be our best in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen and amen.